0: you think you're going to continue to be pushed around by white men? No, I don't. The Negroes are stepping up, they're waking up, and they're going to do something about what the white man did. It's very hard to try to explain to someone what it feels like to be black in a white world.
1: Now, this is what's wrong all over the country. The police think they're Gestapos and they're going around inflaming
0: hate by their treatment of the Negro people. This is what set off riots. I think we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard.
1: Riots have a way of upping the ante. Riots are urgent. Government is slow. And as Dr. Martin Luther King explains to CBS in 1966, patience in the Black community is wearing thin.
0: The mood of the Negro community now is one of urgency, one of saying that we aren't going to wait, that we've got to have our freedom. We've waited too long so that I would say that every summer we are gonna have this kind of vigorous protest. My hope is that it will be nonviolent.
1: How do you use the grinding incremental process of government to try to fix society's problems when the moment calls for immediate action? That's the issue facing Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson in 1966. American cities are broken. Protests against the war, police brutality, the ravages of urban renewal, you name it, are everywhere. And very often, these protests are turning violent. Can Washington DC, heavily segregated, rife with blight, be the laboratory for environmental justice Lady Bird hopes it'll be? It's going to take more than flowers. It's going to take some allies and a lot of money. And she's going to need some inspiration, which ladybird will find in an unexpected place, some three thousand miles from the nation's capital? From Best Case Studios and ABC Audio, this is In Plain Sight. I'm Julia Swig. Oh,
0: how time flies with crystal clear eyes.
1: Episode five, California. In November, 1934, Lady Bird and her brash young man, Lyndon Johnson, drove from Karnak to San Antonio, Texas to get married. Probably. I
0: had not, at this time, firmly made up my mind. I would either get off at Austin and just say goodbye forever, or I would go on to San Antonio.
1: They arrived at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in San Antonio. So far, so good.
0: By that time, it all seemed inevitable. I can't imagine myself fleeing from the church door. I've committed myself that far, if that was it.
1: They realized they didn't have a ring, so a friend ran across the street to a Sears Roebuck and bought one for a couple bucks. For the quick ceremony, she wore a lavender silk dress she already owned, and afterwards, they celebrated with friends. Even though Prohibition had ended the year before, they had a hard time tracking down any liquor. You could look at Lady Bird's focus on her daughter Lucy's wedding in August of 66 as compensation for the one she never had. Lucy is 19, engaged to Patrick Nugent. Pat's parents are died in the wool Republicans from Waukegan, Illinois. And the joke at the time is that LBJ isn't losing a daughter. He's gaining a vote. The diaries are chock-full of staggering detail, the hair, the clothing, the food, the decorations, the calligraphy, the invitations. And because this event rises to the level of international incident, there are unique, outrageous gifts arriving from around the globe.
0: Ethiopia has sent a wedding present valued at $10,000 to Lucy.
1: It's a native costume with some gold bangle bracelets and earrings. The whole thing's completely over the top. There's a reception in Georgetown with the diplomatic corps an engagement party at the Supreme Court. Never before
0: has there been a party for a bride in the Supreme Court. All the Supreme Court
1: came, with the exception of Bill Douglas, who was off making a speech. The event itself will take place at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Northeast Washington, DC, the largest Catholic church in North America. Meanwhile, 1,200 miles away in Chicago, a heat wave has descended on the city, and tensions are boiling over. When young kids open a bunch of fire hydrants, the police crack down, and it escalates into a riot.
0: Chicago's west side is a patchwork of violence at this hour. We hear reports of rock throwing, a few Molotov cocktails, and hundreds of police are rushing to the scenes of trouble.
1: Earlier that year, Martin Luther King Jr. moved into an apartment on Chicago's west side with his wife, Coretta, and their children. They've come to Chicago to make the point that racism and violence aren't just a thing of the rural South. King's a great believer in nonviolent protest. As he told CBS News that summer, he sees the riots as a problem, even if they're also a symptom.
0: I think violence creates many more social problems than it solves, but I do think that it is necessary for our nation to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the conditions of injustice, of economic deprivation, of depressing housing conditions, inadequate education, and all of these things which breed violence.
1: On August 5th, the day before Lucy's wedding in DC, King leads 700 protesters on what's meant to be a peaceful march to Chicago's Marquette Park. He's met by an angry white mob. King is hit in the head by a rock. He tells ABC News that the racist atmosphere in Chicago is the worst he's experienced.
0: I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. The bells in the church tower have been peeling over the city for an hour. Halfway up the 37 steps to the church door, Mrs. Johnson
1: joins her husband and daughter. Lady Bird no doubt wanted to give her daughter the perfect wedding. The news of the day called it a wedding for history, and the coverage was all pomp and circumstance. This was a personal family wedding. There are 700 guests. Nobody is invited except the immediate country, quips comic Edie Adams. Time magazine calls it a semi-monarchical event. But there's something off-key about the whole thing, including the date. Lucy Johnson's wedding is on the 21st anniversary of the first use of an atomic bomb at Hiroshima. A protester named Katherine Henry previews the plans she and other activists have for the wedding day.
0: The ad hoc committee was planning to picket Lucy Johnson's wedding at the church. And there was a demonstration planned for DuPont Circle and a
1: march to the White House. Outside the church, Protesters play folk music and carry signs that say things like, LBJ's Great Imperialist Society in red, white, and blue letters. There are two children's coffins draped with Japanese and North Vietnamese flags. A boy carries a box of rice and a sign saying, Wedding Rice for Starving Vietnamese. After the service, the wedding party makes its way to the White House for the reception. Lyndon joined me for the drive to the
0: White House, down Rhode Island Avenue, along which way I carefully counted all the cherry trees that the Society for a More Beautiful Capital had put out this spring to see how many were dying or dead. It was crushing. I counted 61.
1: I don't want to read too much into this. But for Ladybird, who's put so much faith in the idea that planting is the path to empowerment, that America can beautify its way to social justice, this must feel like an omen. Stokely Carmichael is the 25-year-old head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, as it's known. He popularized the term Black Power, and he's beginning to publicly challenge the idea of nonviolent civil disobedience, like here on Meet the Press.
0: Black people across the country are becoming politically aware of their position and their strength. When the question is whether or not this country is going to be able to meet their needs peacefully or whether they will have to move to disrupt this country in order to force the country to speak to their needs.
1: That summer, there are riots in over 40 American cities, places like Cleveland, Ohio, Omaha, Nebraska, and Lansing, Michigan. Or riot is the word used at the time. It deserves a little unpacking. The word implies a kind of spontaneous, improvised eruption of lawlessness, violent clashes with the police, the destruction of property. And there's some of that. In the summer of 66, many of what are called riots start as protests over police killings, over housing discrimination, the destructive effects of urban renewal on communities of color. These are systemic issues that are coming to a head, and the White House can't move fast enough to fix them. The pressure's on LBJ to do more. LBJ's got to feel particularly misunderstood by his critics on this score, since he's done a lot to signal his commitment to equal rights.
0: We seek not just freedom, but opportunity. We seek not just legal equity, but human ability. Not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result.
1: That's a speech Johnson gave the previous summer at Howard University. Years later, Ibram X Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, would call it quite possibly the most anti-racist avowal ever uttered from the lips of the US president. So pretty good LBJ. But the riots, they get him using the words that presidents use when confronted with protests that turn violent. Every citizen in this land must be
0: concerned with law and order.
1: In September, in an attempt to respond to the rising tide of racial unrest around the country, the West Wing and the East Wing, that's the Office of the First Lady, together host a conference to analyze what's happening in American cities. New York City Mayor John Lindsay frames it as a crisis and a warning.
0: The single greatest challenge that exists in the country today, plainly stated, is whether the cities around which Americans are gathering can be made to work. If the answer is no to that question, then we're destined to witness the decline not only of our cities, but the decline of an entire country.
1: During a break between sessions at the conference, Ladybird is introduced to a man named Stephen Courier. Courier comes from money, and he married into even more of it. His wife is Audrey Mellon, heiress to a banking fortune. For aristocrats, they're pretty radical. Audrey uses a few hundred million dollars of her trust to create a new philanthropic organization and loses her spot in the social register. They're major financial backers of the 1963 March on Washington, the Voter Education Project, and a slew of other civil rights initiatives. Now, with all the unrest, they're looking at American cities. Lady Bird's flying out to San Francisco in a few days' time. The trip really has two purposes, to support embattled Democrats and to spotlight California's environmentalism. Hearing that, Courier suggests she meet a San Francisco-based landscape architect who's done some very interesting projects out there, both public and private. He's got real vision. He's an innovator. His name is Lawrence Halprin. Larry Halprin has worked on parks, plazas, and private estates, and freeways. If you ever find yourself on a drive from San Francisco to, say, Facebook or Google, you'll take Highway 280 south toward Palo Alto. It's a beautifully landscaped, curving parkway that hugs the contours of the land as it eases out of the city. For federally funded infrastructure, it's positively enlightened. This is the work of Larry Halprin. Halprin grew up in New York City, went to Harvard, and served in the Pacific during the war. He and his wife Anna, an avant-garde choreographer, live in Marin County, that mellow outpost of the counterculture across the Golden Gate Bridge. He's just completing a new project, multiracial housing for a retired longshoremen right in San Francisco. It's a direct response to the destructive urban renewal of the past two decades to what James Baldwin criticized as negro removal. A couple of days after the White House conference on cities, Larry Halpern is in his light-filled studio in downtown San Francisco when he gets a call from one of Courier's minions. Confidentially, Courier's guy tells Halpern there is some unhappiness about the plans, which seem to be limited to flower beds, and Mrs. J is aware of how this is now being laughed at and joked about. Courier is prepared to underwrite a new plan, one that gets more at the root of Washington, D.C.'s urban problems. And based on Halperin's success in San Francisco, Courier thinks he's the right guy to help the First Lady. Halperin also gets a call from Lady Bird's policy staffer, Sharon Francis who promises him all kinds of access, to Secretary of the Interior Stuart Udall, a private meeting with Mrs. Johnson. Carte Blanche, Halpern writes in his notebook. In California in 1966, an actor named Ronald Reagan is challenging Governor Pat Brown, and down-ballot Democrats are under threat as well. Cameras follow Lady Bird everywhere on her trip, including on the flight out. Democratic Party donors from San Francisco's high-style fashion depot, iMagnon, stage a runway show at 30,000 feet.
0: Arranged by American Airlines, which chartered the First Lady's 727 jet, the fashion show featured the newest West Coast original from the Magnon specialty firm of San Francisco.
1: In the White House film documenting the trip, Models slink up and down the aisle of the 727, while Lady Bird and her entourage take in the parade of mod mid-60s styles. The clothes, pure
0: California, ranging from vinyl sheets and mini skirts and earrings as big as golf balls and pantsuits and metallic gold stockings. There was lots for Linda Bird and Lucy to love, but not for me. By 3.30 in the afternoon Pacific time, Mrs. Johnson's jetliner touched down at Hamilton Air Force Base near San Francisco. On hand to meet her were Governor and Mrs. Edmund Pat Brown of California. And then we were off in a helicopter to Point Reyes, with Governor Brown and Bernice Barney explaining the history of the region, and Steve Udall explaining how it came to be a national seashore.
1: JFK designated the 53,000-acre Point Reyes Peninsula as a national seashore in 1962. But he never got to California to inaugurate it. That honor falls to Ladybird.
0: Only 15 minutes from San Francisco, it was a world away in mood and vista. The great roaring surf, dramatic white cliffs with a narrow spread of beach, and inland, a rural scene of waving grasses
1: and here and there, a dairy farm. Ladybird had been prepared for California to be hostile territory. Ground zero for the counterculture, a hotbed of protest. But in Point Reyes, it all seems remarkably normal. I unveiled a dedicatory plaque naming this a national seashore.
0: I shook hands through the crowd, all quite happy and genial. None of the ugly banners
1: yet that I had been led to believe would appear at every California stop. But the day's not over yet. Lady Bird heads back to the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco's Knob Hill eats a roast beef sandwich in bed, and gets dressed for the evening.
0: A little past eight, Governor Brown and Bernice and the dolls came by for me, and we left for the opera. On the way, I couldn't help hearing chatter over communications about pickets outside the opera house. And when we rolled up to the entrance, there they were, chanting loudly. There was an aura of madness, a sort of mob spirit. Later, I read that some of them carried babies, and some carried
1: guitars. Here's that California she was expecting, guitars and babies on the protest line, that aura of madness. And most of them carried
0: signs that said, Ladybird, bring our troops home now, or Lady Bird, beautify Vietnam. I walked in with whatever dignity and decorum I could manage.
1: During the second act of a Bellini opera, the head of her Secret Service team, Jerry Kivett, enters the box where Lady Bird, the governor, and his wife are sitting.
0: Somewhere during the performance, Jerry was bending over my shoulder saying, in a very imperious voice, "Will you please come with me right away?
1: The Secret Service hustled the three of them out of their seats. Later on back at the hotel,
0: Jerry told me that he'd gotten a message from the FBI that a bomb had been planted It was
1: supposed to go off in our portion of the Opera House. Jerry had been with her in Dallas, in the follow car when Kennedy was assassinated. He's seen the worst of what can happen. He felt sure, he said, that the call had come from some of the pickets outside who had hoped that we would emerge in fear and haste and have some wild picture taken. Lady Bird had been the target of a bomb threat before, when she was out promoting civil rights in the South during the 64 campaign. Then, she'd been a champion for progressive ideals. Now, she's the establishment. So I guess we won on this one. I'm struck by the idea that she sees this as some kind of win. I hear something changing in her. She's becoming more entrenched, more conservative. The same people who are protesting the war, these California activists, might, under other circumstances, be her allies in her fight for the environment but all she sees is opposition. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times best-selling author, and I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. The morning after the bomb scare at the opera, Bird wakes up early. She checks out Lombard Street, that steep zigzag block below Knob Hill. Iconic San Francisco stuff. And though her staff had been impressed by Larry Halperin, she still wants to check out some of his work to see if he's a fit for her own initiatives back in DC. So she heads to a place called Ghirardelli Square. It was an old chocolate factory that had been abandoned.
0: Some imaginative businessman had taken it over and hired the landscape architect Halprin,
1: who had brought it back to life. In 1962, a wealthy California family had bought the defunct brick factory to keep it from being demolished. They hired Halprin and another architect to come up with a plan to repurpose it as a mix of public and commercial space. Ghirardelli Square is the first major adaptive reuse project in the country. Lady Bird senses that this Californian, Larry Halperin, might be just who she needs to bring big ideas and substance to her work in D.C. Before her trip, Lady Bird had talked to an old friend about what she expected, really what she feared and couldn't understand.
0: We had a long talk about young folks, California campuses in particular. It was a shattering hour. LSD and marijuana are real, and our nice young folks know them, are no people who know them, and it is a quagmire to walk in.
1: When I look at the whole story in her diaries, I see someone who's genuinely committed to progressive causes, but who is also starting to feel the yawning distance between herself and the culture of 1960s activism. But in the fall of 66, she's still able to appreciate California and see that it's not just about guitar-slinging protesters and college kids on pot.
0: On the way to California And I don't mean California Literally I was thinking it's so comforting quiet It was a country of artists and poets and writers. John Steinbeck and Robinson Jeffers and Joan Bice of today. The bearded ones come on motorcycles and live under the bridges in a tent or in the parks. And we did see a few of the bearded ones along the way, looking
1: very much at home. And I don't blame them. It's a land you can love. Ultimately, California has made a lasting impression on Ladybird it's given her inspiration, and in Larry Halperin, an unlikely collaborator for her work in DC. A couple of days after Ladybird leaves California, police pull up alongside three black teenagers out joyriding in a stolen Buick in Hunters Point, a mostly black neighborhood just south of San Francisco. The kids ditch the car, and as 16-year-old Matthew Peanut Johnson flees, a policeman fires four shots killing him. Local civil rights leaders and members of the community gathered to demand justice, as captured by a local news crew from KRON.
0: San Francisco has followed the national pattern in which racial violence has been triggered by a police-Negro community confrontation. Nobody an official authority in this town has gone before the citizenry and said that this police officer will be brought to justice.
1: A riot erupts the crowd throws bottles and rocks at police cars and loots businesses. Dr. Carlton Goodlett, a local civil rights leader, frames it as the result of decades of pent up rage.
0: Stokely Carmichael, he said, move over, I will move over you. He expressed the the frustrations of people who for 20 some years in this town have been attempting to work out peacefully and quietly an adjustment.
1: Two weeks later, across the bay in Oakland, Huey Newton announces that he and Bobby Seale are starting the Black Panther Party.
0: In America, Black people are uh, treated very much as uh, the Vietnamese people or any other colonized people because we're used, we're brutalized. The police there in our community not to promote our safety, but they're there to contain us, to uh, brutalize us, to murder us. Back at
1: the White House, Lady Bird writes to Larry Halprin. His work in San Francisco transforming what might have been a blighted warehouse area was, quote, ingenious. He sends her a copy of his 1963 bestseller, Cities. Halprin has a new book called Freeways published that year, which argues for a more thoughtful approach that takes into account the communities they'll impact. It's a relevant topic for his work in DC, Congress is pushing a surge of freeway construction throughout Washington neighborhoods. The freeway plan brings together an unusual coalition, multiracial, multi-class. Basically, everybody hates it. So in October, when Larry arrives in Washington on his first research trip, he's thinking about two ideas, ways to guarantee democratic access to nature in American cities, and how to stop the surge of freeway construction from destroying neighborhoods. Lady Bird's policy staffer, Sharon Francis, organizes Larry Halperin's first D.C. research trip to give him a sense of the geography and its players, the politics he'll have to navigate. She takes him to lunch at Hall's Seafood in Southwest, on the riverfront. Walter Washington, the head of the Housing Authority, and Lady Bird's main connection to Black Washington, joins them. He and Sharon vent about the flowers and monuments focus of the National Park Service.
0: We sort of let our hair down and and everyone quit being polite. Larry said honestly that if we just wanted him to do flower beds, he'd recommend people. If we wanted to get to some of the more serious problems, he he would feel challenged by doing so.
1: After lunch, Walter takes the wheel and drives them into the mostly black areas of Washington. First, they tour a towering housing project in Southeast. The first thing Larry
0: said was, where do people shop around here? And Walter said, well, now that is the point. We've built housing, but we haven't built community facilities to go with the housing.
1: They drive across the 11th Street Bridge out to the bluffs above the banks of the Anacostia River. The Anacostia runs along mostly undeveloped green space overseen by the National Park Service. It's an area of D.C. that's truly segregated. There are few services of any kind, almost no parks. In the late 40s, white Washingtonians rioted when the area's one swimming pool was desegregated. The rivers polluted. And there are plans to run a freeway right through the neighborhood. But it has huge potential. The land's controlled by Stuart Udall's Department of the Interior, and he's one of Lady Bird's most reliable political allies.
0: Larry began to rely upon Walter for the recommendations he would develop for Mrs. Johnson's committee.
1: All fall... Larry Halperin commutes from San Francisco to Washington, doing research, making plans. Stephen Courier commits to hundred grand to cover Halperin's fees. That's about $775,000 in today's dollars. In other words, a lot, especially for the East Wing that doesn't have its own budget. By January, Larry Halperin has finished with his plan for Lady Bird's committee. It's ambitious may be controversial, and Lady Bird knows she has to get key people on board. So she takes a drive with Larry, Stu Udall, and a woman named Libby Rowe, head of the D.C. Planning Commission. They head to the western bank of the river in Anacostia. There, they look out at a spit of land, 35 acres of undeveloped green space called Kingman Island. There's a small lake on it.
0: Larry's suggestion was that Kingman Lake could be pumped out, water purified, and a great swimming lake could be made there right in the heart of the inner city, equivalent to several hundred swimming pools in size.
1: Swimming pools have a kind of symbolic value in the language of civil rights, a flashpoint in the fight for desegregation. Stu and Libby disagree over whether DC is now ready.
0: Libby kept trying to say how the far right wouldn't approve of such a facility and the far left wouldn't approve of it.
1: On the way back to the car, Stu pulls Sharon aside, and as she recalls it, he tells her,
0: Hell, if Libby is right, it means that American society cannot integrate. And he said, on the other hand, if we build this park, I think we're gonna integrate 10 years sooner.
1: As they leave Anacostia, Larry asks Lady Bird whether she's worried about the potential backlash to his plan in such a segregated city. She pats him on the arm and tells him, Don't worry, Larry. I'll take care of that. The next afternoon, in the state dining room at the White House, Larry has set up easels and a projector to present his master plan, a report to Mrs. Johnson's committee for a more beautiful capital. Larry's not dressed in his usual laid-back style, striped pants, paisley, and sandals. He's put on a coat and tie, doing his best to fit in. But he has kept his beard. He makes it clear to the room that he and Lady Bird look at D.C. as a test case, something with major implications. He tells them, Our basic premise here is to think of Washington as the prototype of the rest of the country, not only because it is the capital city— but because it exhibits some of the growing pains that all cities of the United States have. He presents about a dozen ideas. The most ambitious is Kingman Island, an urban park and giant pool, with restaurants and cafes and community centers dotting its shores. They'll have to reroute the planned freeway to make it happen, an absolute game-changer for the Black residents of this neighborhood. Ladybird Bird has carefully built support for a plan that goes right at the very core of urban problems. Udall's National Park Service will take the fight to Congress. Larry has won over the room. And Courier's hundred grand helps, naturally. They might actually make something meaningful happen. Five days later, a twin-engine airplane flying from Puerto Rico to the Virgin Islands disappears. Its only passengers are Stephen and Audrey Courier, the sole financial patrons for the Kingman Island project. The Coast Guard never finds their remains. Their loss means the loss of something else, the backing for Lady Bird and Larry Halperin's ambitious plans for the marginalized and underserved community of Anacostia. Coming up on In Plain Sight, a celebrated Black artist stands up to the White House and the First Lady. And she pays a heavy price for it.
0: Eartha Kitt, who was outburst yesterday at a White House luncheon against the What I
1: said to Mrs. Johnson upset her. I don't know why it should upset her. I was telling her the truth. The Johnson presidency is spiraling. The declining polls, the rising frustrations. I heard calls of shame, shame. And LBJ just wants out. Lyndon reaches out to me more than ever, and yet I do not have the wisdom That's coming up next on In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. In Plain Sight was written and executive produced by Adam Pincus and me, Julia Zweig. It's based on the work I did for my book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. Executive producers for ABC are Victoria Thompson and Eric Johnson. Our producer is Ann Carkeet. Ali Gallo is our associate producer. Susie Liu is ABC's archival producer. Associate Producers for Archival are Isabel Dorval and Dana Schaefer. This episode was edited by Erica Heilman with additional editing by Vanessa Lowe and help from Lindsay Cradwell. It was mixed by Dean White. Our theme music is Crossbone Style by Cat Power. The song California is by Angel Olson. Original music is composed by Sam Retzer. Our music supervisor is Linda Cohen. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips & Special thanks to Kevin Pham at Best Case Studios. And thanks to Joshua Cohan, Liz Alessi, and Stacia Deshescu at ABC Audio, Mike Kelly and Beth Hoppy at ABC News Longform, and Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown, who handled our legal and standards review. In Plain Sight is a co-production of Best Case Studios and ABC Audio. Some material was edited for clarity and time. Be sure to subscribe to the In Plain Sight podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Monday.